0: Welcome to the Harvard Center for International Development's Beyond COVID podcast. This is a series of conversations with faculty experts on various dimensions of COVID response and recovery. Our goal with these conversations and with CID's Beyond COVID Research Initiative is to use lessons learned and capitalize on innovations sparked by the pandemic to address losses and reimagine global development in the post-COVID era. My name is Nika Santos. I am a graduate student at the Harvard Graduate School of Education and a CAD student ambassador. This week, we are joined by Professor David Deming, academic dean and Isabel and Scott Black, professor of political economy at the Harvard Kennedy School. He is also the director of the Malcolm Wiener Center for Social Policy at HKS and the faculty dean of Kirkland House at Harvard College. I'm sitting down with him today, April 20, 2022, to discuss the beyond-COVID future of work and education. David, thank you for joining us today.
1: It's great to be with you, Nika. Thanks for having me.
0: I've heard you talk about creating smoother transitions from education to the workplace. As an overview, can you tell us about what that transition currently looks like in the U.S. and how well this model works as we move beyond COVID?
1: Yeah, sure. So I think the U.S. is actually something of an outlier among, among more developed countries in the sense that it doesn't we don't do as much to structure the transition between education and the labor market compared to other Countries. Just to give you some statistics, we spend about 20% of the OECD average on what's called active labor market programs and policies. So these are things like employment subsidies, apprenticeship programs, job training assistance, things like that. Anything that's essentially meant to create pathways or make, you know, allow people to take time off to transition or things like that. So that, that actually is, is both a strength and a weakness. Um, in the U.S. I mean, the U.S. has a very decentralized education and training system. It's easy to jump off the track and go back on to go back relatively easy to go back to college to learn something new or to community college to get retrained. We don't track people as much as let's say European countries do in terms of are you on the academic track or the vocational track. You know, in many countries they'll take a test at some point when you're a teenager and um be kind of be slotted into a certain type of school we don't do things like that the u.s system is open and forgiving but the but, so that's that's a benefit because it's never too late principle, to get to get into a certain type of career on the other hand we don't put a lot of guardrails around it and what that means is it's easy for people to to get lost in in these transitions we don't actually provide a lot of support or structure for people who want to let's say do an apprenticeship or enter a skilled trade we don't really subsidize it we kind of just count on the market for it to happen and you know, it, I think what that means is in times where people are looking for work or people are looking for opportunities, it tends to be those who have more advantages, those who have the resources to take some time off or to um, go back to school or you know can afford to borrow money to do it and so forth, tend to take advantage of it more often. So as in many other stories with markets, the decentralization can be a strength, but it also can be a weakness, it creates inequality and things like that. So that's my summary of how the US compares to other countries.
0: Yeah, I'd like to zoom in a little bit on the more, I guess, individual behavior part of that then. How do you think COVID has changed job seekers' attitudes, behaviors, and needs? And on the employer side, how has COVID changed their demands and expectations?
1: Well, so on, on the job seeker side, I think it's, a, in, su- in one sense, I can answer the question. In another sense, it's probably too early to say what the long-run equilibrium is. So right now, you know, as, as everyone knows, especially in the US, but in other places too, it's very job seeker-friendly market, unemployment rate is very low, demand for workers is through the roof, workers have a lot of bargaining power, a lot of employers are preemptively raising salaries, providing more workplace flexibility, allowing people to work from home, most, which is partly technological, you know, work from home is easier now because everyone knows how to use Zoom, but part of it is because if, you know, worker, this is a, a workplace amenity, it's much nicer to work from home than it is to commute into the office for most people if they can manage to do it. And so if, if your workers want to do it and they're going to quit, if you don't let them, then you're going to let them. And so I think whether that will persist um, in the long run, I think it's still to be determined. I think for sure it is the case that remote work will be more common in the future than it was before the pandemic. But I think what's less clear is whether... equilibrium will be okay everyone's still getting paid what they were getting paid and doing the same thing they were doing it just now they don't have to commute anymore so i think what you'll see is that when next time we have a recession which will you know is sure to happen at some and the next time the labor market becomes less favorable to employees um what what has become a way to retain people because of their preferences will be a a reason to cut pay or or a decision to to let one employee go versus the other because one of them isn't coming in and the other one is and so forth and so i think that uh, that adjustment of what are the demands that um, employers place on their employees and what is in in essence like what what kind of salary or other benefits am I willing to give up to work from home rather than going to the office and where is the office and how big is it and how often do I go all those things are going to get sorted out over time and I don't think we know we know the answer yet I I, I can make a couple predictions but they're just predictions in the world right now the world of work is very uncertain for all the reasons I said so.
0: In your working paper, Structural Increases in Skill Demand After the Greek Recession, which is co-authored with Peter Blair, you find that job candidates will have to obtain a four-year college degree to compete in the labor market. But you have also written about your belief in the potential of community colleges to alleviate unemployment. Are we beginning to see greater demand for community college-educated workers, and what opportunities are emerging for those for whom a four-year college is not a viable option?
1: It's a great question, Anika. I, I would say there's at least two things going on. So one is the reason we called the paper structural increases in skill demand is because p- part of the reason why employers were asking for bachelor's degrees more in 2019 than they were in 2007 or 2010 is because of cyclical conditions, right? So um, when the job market is hotter, employers relax their degree requirements. We're seeing that now a lot of employers are you know, saying we don't, we don't, we don't need you to have a bachelor's degree because if they impose that as a requirement, they can't find anyone because those workers are in such high demand. And so you tend to be a little more flexible about what, what you're demanding of of applicants when it's harder to, to hire. So that's the cyclical component. And that's a reason to see demand for degrees softening as the job market heats up. And we have seen that. But But after you kind of account for that, what you do see is a general secular increase, meaning like a steady increase in the demand for measures of education, so even net of, so that's kind of what the paper was about to say, even netting out the cyclical component, it seems over time that jobs that didn't used to require degrees now are, even holding the business cycle conditions constant. And I interpret that as a very long, I mean, that's certainly true in the long run. I mean, the share of jobs, the share of workers who had degrees in the US was much, much lower a few decades ago than it is now. And that's going to that's continue to play out. Each cohort is a little bit more educated than the one before it. and So I think what you see is is, um, upgrading in um, the requirements of jobs. Just to give you one example, if you think about the job of administrative assistant, it's actually kind of a new job. It used to be secretary. And what secretaries did before that was was type or take notes and kind of record what happened in meetings or take down a letter on behalf of the manager or something like that, which was an important function um, but in some sense, you it know, doesn't does in no way require advanced education and training, but now actually administrative assistants, executive, ed- executive assistants do a lot of scheduling, coordinating, kind of optimizing the workday on behalf of the people they're working for, making more decisions, solving co- more complex problems. Those are all things that, you know, none of it requires a bachelor's degree because a bachelor's degree is a very general purpose skill set. So it's not like you have to have one. But but on average, people who have more education are better at, at those kinds of abstract problem solving workplace tasks, and so I think that's the general trend we're seeing. It's not going away anytime soon. And so, having said that, I think there's like still it's still the case that more than half of, of workers don't have a bachelor's degree. So it's like it's not like we can just say, well, too bad, you know, you're not gonna have a job. Like there's still very much a role for people who don't have a bachelor's degree, and I do think. I don't know whether it's actually happening that community college uh, degrees are more desirable, but I think there's tremendous potential for that to happen, particularly if community colleges, as many have done already, lean into their um, job training mission. Community colleges varies by the school and by the state but they've always kind of served two broad purposes. One is the transfer function. You go to a community college, you spend less money, you get a general, you take some classes that are amount to like the first two years of a four-year bachelor's degree program. And then you transfer to a four-year college and finish. Um, and in states like California, that's a very common accepted route. But then the other thing they do is they say, okay, we're not trying to train people to go to get a BA. We're actually providing programs that lead directly to jobs. So in, in cases like advanced manufacturing, you can get an associate's degree or in healthcare jobs like a lot of nurses, licensed practical nursing jobs, not, not all of them, many of them don't require a bachelor's degree or, you know, health technicians, um, medical records. There's a lot of kind of sub-baccalaureate degrees that are offered that, are, that, that actually lead to good, good paying jobs that are in demand. And I think community colleges are, are an essential part of that solution.
0: I love that you've sort of touched on upskilling a bit. Uh, Because I know some of your recent work has underscored the importance of soft skills or 21st century skills, as educators often say, to the future of work. And I doubt anyone would disagree that problem solving, initiative and social competence are necessary skills for any professional to have. What predictions do you have about the demand for such soft skills in the labor market during this post-COVID period? Have certain skills become especially desirable given the ways work has changed?
1: Yeah, it's a it, it's a question that's near and dear to my heart, uh, Nika, because it's something that I work on a lot. I, I mean, my short answer is maybe the demand for those skills has increased after COVID, but that, that that's already happened. That that's you know, if you go to these there are these um, surveys, like the National Association of Colleges and Employers does the an annual job outlook survey where they interview some thousand number of firms that hire every year hire college graduates, and they ask them what are the skills that are most in demand you know, when you're hiring, what are the things you're looking for? And the top five every year are the things you just mentioned, you know, ability to work in a team, verbal and written communication, problem solving initiative, you know, some version of those five or six things is always in the very top. And it's been the case for a long time. And they're often above technical skills, analytical skills. And then when they, when you ask people, how, they ask these employers, how do you rate college graduates on these things? They tend to give them high marks on analytical skills and technical skills, but lower marks on things like the soft skills you mentioned. And so I think that demand has been there for a long time. And that's something I've been, I've thought a lot about. I, I think it's basically, we call it, we think of them soft skills as like squishy because we call them soft, but, but really the term soft is a statement about the limits of our understanding. We call them soft because we don't actually know what they are. You know, does problem solving mean? It's like not, it's not that well-defined. And so we tend to think, well, therefore it's kind of something people just wave their hands about, but no, I think it's actually pretty critical. And I think we're just, in an academic sense, we're really just beginning to understand how to define, measure, build, you know, develop these, these soft skills. I like to call them higher order skills because I think most of what gets tested in school is like, if you think about Bloom's taxonomy of knowledge, there's kind of like factual understanding and it and goes on up the pyramid to integration of new concepts and creativity and things like that. And I think a lot of these things are actually higher up the knowledge, the, the, the pyramid in the sense that there are capacities to use the information you've acquired in school to make better decisions and solve problems and work together with people. And they're actually much more complicated than most of the things we track and measure in school. And so I think we need to begin I'm not saying no one's doing this, but together as a field, meeting economists, psychologists, people who study education, we need to take these capacities seriously and build the science of of soft skills and of human potential.
0: To continue this conversation on skills, during the pandemic school lockdown, students around the world have had to very quickly develop a new set of skills for online and distance learning, and teachers too have had to adapt to demanding new work environment in your opinion, which of these changes are for the better and which are the changes that you have misgivings about?
1: Oh, that's a good question. I think it's a, it's a very good thing that we were all, well, it's a silver lining of the trauma, the, you know, global trauma we've lived through over the past two years, that we all were forced to learn a new technology for working remotely. I think that will pay off for years to come in ways that are hard to predict. You know, it's, it's you know, Zoom and other video conference technologies have existed since long before COVID, but there's a coordination problem. You know, I would be happy to Zoom with you on this podcast, but since you can't take for granted that an old guy like me knows how to Zoom, you're not going to ask me to do it. You're going to come to my office, but actually we all had to do it. And so now I know that everybody learned how to do it. And therefore I feel fine asking people to do it. And so it's all, having solved that coordination problem, again, is a silver lining of, of, of the COVID pandemic. And I think that's a very, very, very good thing that has unlocked a lot of new ways to work and new ways to get things done that are going to make people better off, full stop. So I think it's been mostly good. I mean, I think as with any big technological disruption, there will be winners and losers. And I do worry, for example, about young people like yourself getting started in careers, working remote in a world where people are not in the office as much, where there are fewer serendipitous encounters. One of the things, I, I, I'm not going to be look at, Look at our old, you know, work in person all the time, past with rose colored glasses. But I do think there's something to the conversation after the meeting, the chance encounter, the connection that was made that, that, again, was serendipitous. You wouldn't have expected it when you came in. I think that stuff doesn't really matter for somebody like me who's established in my career, whatever, whatever that means. But for people who are just getting started, I, I do think I do worry a little bit about that. I think it's harder to, to make new business connections. It's easy to maintain the old ones. And so I think we're going to have to figure out ways to help young people build the same social network work based social networks. I think LinkedIn is great, but it's probably not enough. We we have more. We get to know each other better and we have more spontaneous conversations when we're in person. So we're gonna have to find a way to do that.
0: Yeah, and to sort of add to that, a lot of research has come out about how Covid has widened educational gaps and exacerbated inequality around the world. And I know that prior to COVID, you taught, of course, on the causes and consequences of inequality. Knowing what we know now about education in a pandemic, how would you teach that class today? Are there points you would further emphasize or de-emphasize?
1: Uh, that's another great question. I, I would certainly um, spend at least one class, maybe more, on the impact of COVID on K through 12 education. And I, I wouldn't just say it's about COVID, I would say this is, for me, I mean this is an example of how much learning really matters. I, I, I think that the learning loss from the pandemic has been a, a true catastrophe and it's something that I'm very worried and distressed about. And I, I actually don't think we're as distressed about it as a society as we should be. I think people tend to think that the kids will be just fine, and like many of them will, but some of them won't be. and. There are studies that I've talked about in other settings that other people have done looking at, for example, what happened in, I'm forgetting the author's names, but there's a, a well-known study of, uh, in Argentina, there were teacher strikes, and so schools were closed for a month or two months or three months at a time, and so these authors went back and looked and saw, well, if you happen to have the bad luck of being in one of the schools that was closed for some period of time, what was the impact on you as an adult, and found substantial reductions in educational attainment, meaning high school graduation and college attendance reductions in achievement and in earnings for people who missed more school in third, fourth, fifth grade. And so I think those, and those, those impacts were, they weren't huge in the sense that you could sort of look and see something was wrong with all that, because many of this, what would happen is many of the students in those classrooms were fine. They found a way to make it up. And often it, were the, it was the people whose parents understood the value of learning and had the resources to help pick up the slack. But what you see, what, what happens is instead of 5% of the class having to repeat a grade, or 10% of the class has to repeat a grade. And then some share of those people who repeat a grade never end up graduating and they never get a job. And that adds up. And I just think, I had hoped that there would be more of a state or federal effort to remediate learning loss um, in the wake of COVID and maybe that'll still happen, but it hasn't captured the attention of the public as much as I would have hoped. I mean, maybe I should have known that, me being somebody who cares a lot about education, makes sense that we would pay, I would pay more attention to it than other people, but um, I'm pretty worried about it. And I, so, so if I had to teach the class again, I would say like, here's an example of if you, and I would sort of teach some of those papers that look about the long-run impacts of learning loss and talk about some of the proposals out there to do more small group tutoring for students who were remote. And I would maybe talk a little bit about the politics of why that's hard and why we should do it anyway.
0: As we close, I'd love for us to shine an optimistic light on the future. What windows of opportunity are there now or on the horizon for job seekers, educators, and policymakers?
1: Yeah, so I mean, I, I think the big opportunity, the big one for sure is the possibilities opened up by remote work. I think one that's kind of exciting is the um, more even distribution of high growth industries and jobs across the US and across the world. So one of the things that I, I think characterized the 2000s and probably the 1990s as well is the growth of so-called superstar cities, you know, like centers of economic activity like the Bay Area, like New York City, where, you know, you had to move if you were in certain industries and experience super high income growth, but also skyrocketing inequality and really serious problems like um, housing shortages and things like that. And it's like, you know, it's so hard to move to a place like that. In some sense, what the market is telling you is that if we could build more, even more people would want to go there. And that you could, should think about that as a constraint on growth is like there's this really productive place, but I can't afford to live there and therefore I don't move there and kind of use my resources. But part of that was because of the what economists call agglomeration effects, which means like it's good to be around other people and that kind of creates more, pro- increases productivity more when productive people are around each other. So agglomeration, like pushing people together increases the size of the pie. And I think that this promote work technology, Zoom and things like that will dissipate some of that, which is good because what it means is I can still get the benefits of working with all the talented people in the Bay Area, even if I myself am not in the Bay Area. I can be in Austin or I can be in Nashville. I can be in, I can be in uh, Massachusetts or anywhere, Alabama. And so that I think will free up some of the clusters of productivity for, to allow people to live in different places. And, and we won't the constraints on things like housing won't be as binding for increasing productivity growth. It's kind of a econ heavy way of saying, I think remote work will allow people to live in different places and still work with other people in ways that will ultimately be good for everybody. So that's something I'm I'm really pretty optimistic about. Um, And I think even though it's like bad for people who own big commercial real estate buildings in New York City, it's probably good for everybody else. So I'm pretty optimistic about that. And I think also whenever we have a new unlock of a technology, people are extremely creative with finding new uses for it. So I think there's gonna be some amazing innovations in the way work happens coming in the next few years as a result of the fact that everyone knows Zoom. I don't know what they are, but they're gonna be amazing. And I'm looking forward to that.
0: Awesome, I've really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you again, Professor David Deming for taking the time to talk with me today.
1: I enjoyed it too, Nika. It was an absolute pleasure. Thank you.
0: You can learn more about the Center for International Development and CID's Beyond COVID Initiative at cid.harvard.edu. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you back soon.